Hello, my name is Robert Fleming. I'm one of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And, uh, and our firm regularly puts on these podcasts that we call Elder Law Issues. If you've been a regular listener, you've heard my voice before. You might have also heard the opposite number sitting across the, uh, the console from me. Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, my partner in law and uh, also my partner in these podcasts. Elizabeth, welcome. Hey, Robert, I thought you were going to say friendship. Uh, well, that go, kind of goes without saying. We actually, jerk. <laughs> we actually are kind of a big, happy family jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Except that we're not actually a family. But hey. <laughs> so, Elizabeth, um, today I thought we'd talk about the kind of special rules about required minimum distributions for qualified plans, IRAs and 401ks and 403bs and all of those most of the things we're going to talk about apply to all of those defined contribution plans. There are one or two items that are unique to a couple of the different varieties. Uh, and, uh, and I guess maybe we ought to start with a definition of qualified contribution, I'm sorry, defined contribution plan, which is a retirement plan that has tax beneficial treatment that is that is keyed to how much money you put in rather than what the benefits are that come out. A traditional pension might be a defined benefit plan that pays you know, $137 a month for the rest of your life. The defined contribution plans, 401ks, 403bs, IRAs, they depend on how much money you've contributed during your work life. And so, Robert, I think it's important for people today to understand we're not providing investment advice we are Arizona attorneys, so we are licensed to practice here in Arizona. We're providing some input today regarding how these rules affect the rules around these kinds of assets. These types of accounts affect estate planning clients and, and folks who come through our practice. I would tell everybody listening who is about to tune us off, please don't, mm -hmm. because I want to take one second, Robert, before we dive into some of the important notes and rules, just for people to understand something. When we think about things like IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, these are like wild animals. The rules that apply to the road do not generally apply to these kinds of accounts. These types of assets and these types of accounts have a whole different set of rules. So what you're thinking about your brokerage account does not apply to the ways that we talk about things like IRAs. And a lot of people get this confused. And if you are going in to see an estate planning attorney or you have gotten advice about your estate plan and you have not differentiated your brokerage account or money market account from something like a retirement account, you need to go back to your estate planning attorney and have a conversation about that. Absolutely right. These rules are unnecessarily complicated. They've been simplified quite a bit um, as of a couple of years ago. Actually, if you're old like me, you can remember when before 2001, they were vastly more complicated and they were tremendously simplified 20 years ago. Well, they've been simplified again, and uh, the simplification has mostly been a negative result for most uh, account holders, though there are a couple of positive things as well. Uh, but, uh, but the big issue is uh, that, um, that it's really hard to have a retirement account last for years after your own death. It can last the rest of your life, your account can, 
but um, the old rule about trying to make it stretch out as long as possible. In fact, we used to call them stretch IRAs uh, because it was a great way to leave money to your children for their retirement. They could take the money out over their life expectancy. That's pretty hard to do and in most cases flat out impossible to do under the new rules because of something called the SECURE Act. We've talked about the SECURE Act before and, uh, and I don't want to belabor some of the kind of well-known obvious changes. Robert, is this an Arizona rule when you say the SECURE Act? Let's, let's make sure our listeners understand um, where that comes from. No, it's a federal law, the SECURE law, setting every community up for retirement. Uh-oh, I've forgotten, forgotten what the E in SECURE is for retirement excellence, maybe? Retirement experience, retirement energy, reti- I don't know. Uh, it, it was a federal law. That, uh, that eliminated stretch, inherited stretch IRAs, except in very narrow circumstances. Robert, when you say IRAs, are you talking about Roth IRAs? Thank you. Very good question. A lot of confusion out there about Roth IRAs and how they fit into the mix. Because if you have a Roth IRA, you can, it can grow tax-free. You paid the tax before you put the money in, so you never pay tax again on the Roth IRA. And they're terrific savings devices if you've contributed to a Roth IRA uh, because you can let the money grow there and you never have to take it out. But, and this is the part that confuses people, when you die, unless your spouse receives the Roth IRA, anybody else who receives it has to start taking out the money. And in most cases, again, they have 10 years to take it out. Like you, they don't pay any tax on it when they take it out, but they don't, unlike you, they don't get to leave it around for the rest of their lives. They have that 10-year window. So, Robert, what people need to know, it sounds like you're telling me, is Roth IRAs have even other special rules as kind of wild creatures of their own. They do, and it's all keyed to the fact that the, t- the money was taxed before it ever went into the Roth IRA. Um, some people try to figure out, and we've talked about this in podcasts before, and people can go listen to it in, in detail, but some people talk about taking the money out of their IRA and putting it back into a Roth IRA, Rothizing their IRA. And I actually just said that wrong. You don't take it out. You just you just convert it. Um, and, and that can work for some people, but the year in which you do that, you pay the income tax on the, on the entire value of what you Rothize because it's treated as ordinary income. Robert, when we talk about estate planning and we talk to clients about these retirement assets, is one of the big takeaways that this topic comes up because somebody may have to start taking these required minimum distributions and they want to know whether their kids have to take requirement required minimum distributions? Just for the context, can you explain why this is relevant for estate planning? That's exactly what it is. For 20 years, everybody's gotten used to the idea that you should never take money out of your your defined contribution plan unless you absolutely have to. The goal has always been to put off the the taking the money as long as possible, both because it grows tax-free inside the account and because you pay income tax on whatever you do take out. So accountants and financial planners and lawyers are all focused um, to, to the to the nth degree on delaying or preventing or avoiding having to ever take the money out of a, out of a retirement account. And you know, Elizabeth, when, when the rules were first simplified 20 years ago, if I saw a, a $100,000 IRA 
it was a kind of a rare animal, well, not unheard of, but it was it was unusual. Today we have clients with two and three and four million dollar IRAs all the time, both because there has been such a, a, a value placed on these investments and the market has run up over the last 20 years uh, and people are making more money than they were 20 years ago. So there's a ton of money in these defined contribution plans. And so this becomes a key part of your estate planning. I, I, I know you've seen clients like this, Elizabeth, and I have too, who have a house and a couple hundred thousand dollars in, a, in brokerage accounts or bank accounts and a $2 million IRA. Their IRA may be two-thirds of their whole, their whole net worth. It's it, We see that pretty routinely, Robert. And what I was going to make sure our listeners understand, taking things a step further, not just thinking of the owner. When the owner of, if we're just going to say an IRA, dies, and we're looking at that person's estate plan, we would hope that the person had a beneficiary designated on the IRA. There are questions which we're not going to talk about today regarding whether or not a trust should be named as a beneficiary of an IRA or if you can do that or how to do that or the confusing rules around that. A spouse or a child or a friend or multiple people may be named as a beneficiary on an IRA. But the reason in estate planning meetings this often comes up is, well, if the beneficiary or a beneficiary among a few people is on a retirement account and that person struggles to manage money that person may be struggling for various reasons we see the owner during his or her lifetime often come into us and say oh my gosh i've saved and saved and saved and i do not know how to plan for the distributions that right well the distributions that are going to have to come out of this when i'm dead what do I do about that? And so there's a little bit of planning beyond the grave that goes on with these retirement plans. And I think today, the couple of questions I want to ask you and focus on now have to do with highlighting a few of the changes around the rules with required minimum distributions. First question, if somebody names his or her or their spouse as a beneficiary of one of these retirement vehicles, does that spouse get a stretch out on his or her, their life expectancy? They do effectively because one of the options that they're going to have is to take take the entire account as a rollover account. So if your, your wife dies with a big 401k naming you as beneficiary, you can roll it over into your own 401k or roll it over into an IRA uh, and uh, and you can add it to your existing IRA if you have one. Uh, it becomes your IRA. So effectively, you get a stretch for your life expectancy. That's, by the way, th- there are special rules for spouses that are quite a bit younger, and we're going to ignore some of the special rules to just kind of see the bigger picture about required minimum distributions. And Robert, in a case like this with those facts that you put out there, does it matter if the person who died is older or younger than 72 or 72 and a half? Not for a spouse named as beneficiary. There's no difference. For somebody who has reached their age 72 minimum distribution age, uh, then uh, then it does make a difference for the other beneficiaries who, who might be named, but not spouses. So then here's a follow-up question. Let's just say 
my husband died, I was named as the beneficiary of all of the 401k he had, and it rolled over to me, so I've stretched that out on my life expectancy. And now I've decided to name our nieces and nephews as beneficiaries on that 401k. So when I die, those are the folks who are going to be the beneficiaries on that. And Elizabeth, uh, our listeners don't have my advantage. They can't see you sitting across. (laughs) So are you 72? No, I am 38 years old. 38 years young. So if you die before you turn 72, then your nieces and nephews will inherit the IRA or 401k or whatever it is. They will have to withdraw all of the money in it within 10 years of the of the year, uh, the anniversary year of your death. What? So effectively, if you can arrange to die early in the year, they effectively get 11 years to withdraw the money. That's a crazy rule. Uh, it is a crazy rule. And that's the loss, the death, the, the demise of the stretch IRA. They can no longer treat it as their retirement account. They have to take it all within 10 years. Now, the good news for them is that, uh, that they can wait nine years and take it all in the 10th year. If they, if they are so inclined. Or they can take 10% a year for 10 years. Or they can take it all this year, go ahead and pay the tax hit and, uh, and invest the money however they want. They get complete freedom about how to do it. And Robert, one of my follow-up questions here is what happens if I die in, these facts, in this fact scenario and I'm 80? Now the rules are a little different and a subtle kind of difference that that uh, is the result of recent um, uh, regulations from the IRS. They, they confused us all about their rules, and people may have heard the original notion of the rule or the IRS revision of the, of the notion of the rule or the IRS backtracking on its revision, but here's their current thinking. Before you turn 80, you might want to double-check and make sure this is still their current thinking. But what they think is that when you die at age 80, you've reached the 72 minimum distribution uh, required beginning date calculation. And so your account has turned into an in-pay retirement account. And as a consequence, your nieces and nephews can't just wait 10 years. They have to start taking money out right now. It still has to be out within 10 years, but there's a minimum distribution in each of the years between now and the 10th anniversary. That minimum distribution is based on their life expectancies. So if they're about your age, then they would have to take the money out at about the same rate that you did. Uh, and by the way, if, uh, if you died after age 72, one of the choices they probably have is to take money out over your remaining life expectancy. Maybe the 10-year rule won't even kick in because they can use something that is often called in the trade a term I really love, your ghost life expectancy. After your death, you still, the federal government still gives you a life expectancy. How generous is that? Wow. Well, these rules, Robert, they sound pretty complicated to me, and they are actually. And and I think to many of our clients who come in, these rules um, are frustrating. And I think that one thing to pause and consider, which maybe we might talk about on another podcast, is what happens if, if the beneficiary who I want to receive a benefit from this retirement account is not good managing money? 
how, how do you, you know, how do you start planning ahead for those distributions if they have to come out? And and there's so many questions around that, Robert. I wonder if we might talk another time about some of those. The rules are, are ever-changing, but that's a pretty popular challenge for, for many people, and um, I want to make sure that our listeners can, can learn about that in another podcast. It, it is, and, I, and it, to go into any depth, it really needs to wait for another podcast. Let me just say that 20 years ago, the rules were you could never create a trust to be the beneficiary of an IRA or a 401k. Uh, 10 years ago, you could create one, but a lot of uh, financial planners and, and accountants were still stuck in the old rules where you could never create one. With these new rules, you absolutely can create a trust to deal with the spendthrift or poor money manager. You may cause additional income tax consequences, but you may be willing to incur those consequences in order to provide management. And of course, if, they, if your beneficiary is, uh, is uh, disabled or chronically ill, they may have some special rules that they don't have the, uh, the 10-year requirements. I'm confused and tired. Yeah, and those other things, those special rules, are the ones that most people emphasize and talk about because they're more profound and they're more interesting. But I wanted to make sure we could kind of highlight this one little granular thing about the, uh, the age 72 difference. Can we just leave people with one last IRA-related rule, Elizabeth? Sure. We've talked about this before, but this is perhaps the single most common question I get these days. If you just turned 72 and you're about to take your first distribution, is there any way you can avoid having to pay the income tax on it? And the answer is good news, yes. If you don't need the money, and particularly if you're kind of charitably inclined, you can have what's called a qualified charitable distribution. You can have the IRA custodian send the money straight to your charity, never shows up on your income. Yes, you can deduct the charitable gift if you receive the money and make a charitable gift, but maybe you use the standard deduction. You don't even itemize anymore. In that case, your, your, uh, your charitable deduction is limited to about 300 bucks. So it's a great way to avoid the income tax liability, especially in those first couple of years when your minimum distributions are smaller and you're still earning income from other sources. So the income tax would be more, more profound. That rule only works for IRAs, doesn't work for 401ks, 403bs, 457s, KEO plans, none of the others, just IRAs. Well, Robert, this was this was just, uh, I think, the tip of the iceberg today. It was. We'll uh, have a lot of fun talking about retirement plans, maybe endlessly. Maybe we'll do that every podcast. Please, for... no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Robert Fleming. You've been listening to me and Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, two of the partners at Fleming & Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm where we host Elder Law Issues, our weekly podcast. We hope that you will join us again next time when maybe that's when we'll talk about some of the other retirement account foibles.